Good to see you back this afternoon. We appreciate so much you being here. I know that if you stayed for the meal, you probably had the opportunity to have all that you wanted and got full. And so once you do that, you get sleepy. But we're going to do things the union way today. Uh, you know, union, sometimes you have a person who does one job and that's the only job he can do. Well, now if I put you to sleep this afternoon, the guy who is going to wake you up is not here. So you're on your own. Go to sleep at your own risk. And we'll, we'll just go from there. Once read the story of three fathers, three very different fathers. Father number one was very permissive. He, he had children, and as his children were growing up, anything that they did wrong, he laughed at, thought it was funny. It didn't make any difference what they did. And he would just, uh, you know, go on with them like, okay, they're just children. They're just, they're just going to do bad things sometimes. And, and everything just, you know, he just let it roll along. Well, you can imagine that when his children grew up, what kind of children he had, they had learned from their father that anything goes. And so they became lewd, vile, you know, very offensive individuals when, when they grew up. Second father was... Very different. Actually, he was completely opposite of that first father. He had children, and whenever they did something wrong, those children were immediately, they were just uh, disciplined at the very uh, harshest kind of discipline that, that he could put forth because he believed that unless they, you just take care of things, you know, harsh and, and, and hard right now, that, that uh, you know, you just don't, won't raise a child that will be, be worth anything. And, and so you can imagine when his children grew up, what kind of children they were. They were very resentful and uh, they did not care much for him because of his attitude, his harshness and the kinds of things that he treated them with as they were growing up. And then you had father number three, who was a mixture, I guess you might say, of one and two to some degree. Uh, as his children were growing up, he believed that discipline began with uh, some training, some teaching and training, and it continued with explaining, and, and, and then finally, if all of that failed, then ultimately there was punishment that was to be doled out. And so uh, he, he raised his children from that standpoint. And so when his children grew up, you might well think about what they would have been. They grew up and having taught their, his children to uh, understand the way of the Lord, that's the way his children went. And he explained to them what they must do and, and corrected them. And so they had learned that in life. And, and as they themselves grew up, they, they began to take on that responsibility for themselves. And so they grew up to respect their father, to respect God, believe in him, and to discipline themselves as he had guided them to be a righteous and godly person. In a sense, congregations of the Lord's people are like these three fathers. You have some congregations, it seems, that every sin that can be imagined almost is practiced and no one ever says a word uh, they go on in, within a, the walls and confines of a, a congregational um, uh, group of people and, and nothing, nothing is ever corrected. You have some congregations or at least individual members sometimes in congregations that believe that every sin that, is, uh, uh, that, that, that a person commits, no matter how 
how small or how egregious it might be, and I understand that sins are big in the sight of God, but they believe that everything must be met with the threat of withdrawing fellowship. If you do not just toe the line, that you have that kind of attitude. And then there are those congregations that fully understand, I believe, or at least understand better what discipline is to be found in the Word of God. Uh, they're like the father, that third father. They believe in, in uh, training, teaching, training, explaining, and then if all of that fails, no matter how hard it may be and how much it may hurt, then you have that ultimate step of withdrawing a fellowship. I believe that's the way that the Bible teaches that discipline is to be. In the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, at verse number 14, the Bible says, Paul writing, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Look at that word admonish for just a moment. When we look at that word, it's a word which means to caution or reprove gently. To caution or reprove gently. The idle were those who, who would refuse to work or to, to do, and Paul would discuss that more. But as we look at it, he, he's teaching us that one of, the, one of the ways that we discipline our members and ourselves is to be admonished, to, to gently reprove. In the book of Titus, chapter 3, at verse number 10, that same word is used, it's just translated differently. Verse 10 says, As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him, that's our same word that's translated admonish in our other passage there, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. And so we have that idea again of gentle uh, uh, caution and, gen and reprove gently. But he says, after you've done that two times, then it's from that point that other action must be taken. But then, as we think about what Paul wrote in the book of Titus, chapter 1, verses 10 through 14, we have another word. Paul begins there by saying, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Look there, if you will, in verse number 13, where he talks about rebuking. He says, rebuke them sharply. The word translated rebuke means convict, convince, to tell a fault, to reprove or to rebuke. And so as we look at it, again, convict, convince, tell a fault. It's the same word translated rebuke here that's found in Matthew chapter 18, verse number 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. That's the idea of rebuke. Go and tell him his fault. And so it's between you and him alone, he says. But then he says rebuke him sharply. The idea is decisively, forthrightly. 
That's the idea that Paul is trying to, uh, uh, to put forth here. And so, in rebuking, the idea is that we go and we, in a forthright manner, explain, tell, however, whatever words you want to use, we explain the, the problem. We tell them why it's wrong. And, and you know, we approach things from, from that standpoint. Admonish and rebuke are two different things. And so when we've got the idea of doing this one time and then a second time and then moving on, it's sort of like what we read in the book of First Corinthians, or rather Matthew chapter 18, where you go to the person, you take someone with you, two, uh, one or two more with you, and then uh, finally take it to the church. But the idea is that church discipline is not always, it's not limited to simply the withdrawal of fellowship. Folks have to be taught. Explanations need to be given as to why things are wrong and what, what needs to be done to make the life right. And so sometimes we have a misconception that church discipline is not going on when in reality it is. It's just not that last step that sometimes must be taken. You know, you tell your children, if you do not straighten up, then you're going to get a whipping. You know, that, that may not be heard very much in our day and time, but if you don't straighten up, and they don't straighten up, if you're true to your word, then you're going to raise a child that's going to do right. Okay? And the same thing is true in the Lord's church. And so we can't get the picture in our mind that this last step of simply withdrawing fellowship is all there is to church discipline. Now, if things don't work, if that admonishing and that rebuking does not work, then there is that third step. And that's found in Matthew 18, verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile, as a tax collector. We talked about tax collectors a little bit in our lesson this morning. Let them be, that's the idea of withdrawing fellowship. It's mentioned in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter number 5, verses 4 and 5. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And it's also true from 2 John chapter 1, or 2 John only one chapter, verses 10 and 11. If anyone comes uh, to you and does not bring his teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him or takes part in his wicked, or whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. If we do not separate ourselves and we continue to allow something that's sinful to go on, then we who are spiritual, we who are faithful, uh, we begin to be perceived by God as partaking of the evil deeds. And so we have to, we have to understand that there is a point which withdrawal of fellowship must be, must be made. But this afternoon, having made these observations, it seems evident that far too often church discipline is being neglected. And so that's our question this afternoon, is why, why is church discipline not practiced all the way to its fullest extent, if that is needed. Why is that? Well, I suppose tonight or this afternoon there could be as many answers as there are congregations of the Lord's people. You know, there are different things that go on in different places. 
And I don't propose this afternoon that I have all the answers as to why not or all of the things that have to do with it. Let me make a few suggestions and then we'll get into the main body of our lesson and talk more in detail. It may be that sometimes church discipline is not practiced because we haven't taught enough on that subject. In the book of uh, Old Testament book of Hosea, chapter 4, verse number 6, the Bible says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. If we don't know and we don't know better, then we don't do or we don't do better. And so preachers and elders and Bible class teachers, you know, that's not the only subject that we need to deal with, but maybe we need to spend some time in detailed study of the idea of church discipline, what it is, what it consists of, how it's done, my responsibility, along with the responsibility of the elders and, and the rest of the congregation, we need, to, we need to understand those things. And so it may be that we just haven't taught enough on the subject. Number two, it may be that sin is so widespread that it seems like a, an overwhelming task. There's just so much going on that questions sometimes ask, well, where do you start? You know, too many things are going on, there's sinful things in the lives of people, where, where do you start? Well, I'm not exactly sure, and it's not my intention this afternoon to deal with that in great detail, but I do know one thing. I know what the church was told in Revelation chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. The Lord said, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then that you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Point is, you've got to start somewhere. You've got to start somewhere. And so, you know, as you think about the idea, the concept that's there, he said, make sure that you take care of what's living. Wake up and strengthen what remains. Because you better watch it. If you don't, it's going to die too. And so it may be overwhelming, but we have to understand that we've got to begin somewhere. Number three, it may not be practiced because it's an unpleasant thing. It's not a, not a pleasant thing to confront people about their sin, the sin that they have in their life. But you know what is said in the book of James chapter 5, verse number 20? James wrote these words. He says, let him that who... Uh, uh, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death, cover a multitude of sins. If, if the person, and we'll talk more about this in just a little while, but if we refuse to go, even though it, it is unpleasant, we're allowing a soul, a soul to make its way toward spiritual death and eternal death. And so we have to remember that even though it's unpleasant, Paul, or rather James said, let him know that whoever, whoever takes the step, as unpleasant as it may be, is doing the right thing. Well, somebody may say, uh, I think it would just be overlooked. We're, we're doing so much good. We're, we're, we're trying our best to do all these other things. And, and so this matter or that matter or whatever it may be, you know, God just, he'll just forget about that. He'll overlook that one. I'm not sure that's the case either. I know that uh, uh, the Lord had some things to say through the prophet to Saul, King Saul, back in the Old Testament. 
one of the verses is found in 1 Samuel chapter 15 at verse 22. Samuel said, Has the Lord his great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. You remember the story, don't you? King Saul went. He was told to destroy, utterly destroy the king and all that he had. Uh, he decided he'd bring the king and the prize possessions, the prize animals back. And what he was going to do with those is offer them as sacrifice to God. God said, that's not what I wanted. That's not what I told you to do. Even though sacrifice was a, a good thing under the Old Testament law, that's not what God demanded. And God didn't overlook it. And so, even though we may think things may be overlooked, the Lord doesn't think about it in those ways. Number five, we may be afraid of the consequences of, of what, might, what might happen. Somebody might not like what we've done. Somebody might turn away from the, the Lord. We are afraid of the consequences. But Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. We have to put our, our fear, our respect, our reverence in the right spot. And it may just be, number six, that we're just lacking in courage. We just don't have the backbone to stand up. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. And so he says you've got to grow a backbone. There are times when you have to have that backbone. And you have to stand firm for the truth. And so these are some possibilities. I don't know. And, and again, I don't know all of the things that, that, that's in the minds of people. But I'm not sure that these are the major things. I think these are sometimes excuses that are brought forth, but I'm not sure that they are the major things. I want to discuss in the time that we have left tonight three things. Three things that I would put at the top of the list as to why we don't, in, in the Lord's church, practice church discipline as we ought. Number one, there's a misunderstanding of the concept of judging. We talk about that. We hear about that. If you watch the news, television news, you have the idea, well, you can't judge me. You can't, you can't make decisions for me. You can't press what you believe on me. And our society has fallen hook, line, and sinker for it. We have jumped on that. And even within the Lord's church, we have jumped on that. And young people have been convinced in, I don't know, whatever sources that it is, and older folks alike, we've been convinced that, that it's wrong to judge. How many of you have heard, how many of you can quote Matthew chapter 7, verse number 1? Judge not that you be not judged. Now, I want you to, I want you to think about this. Some people read that and they conclude that making judgments of any kind are, are, are being prohibited here. But, that was a pregnant pause, but that's not what's happening. That's not what's happening. We need to realize that there are other passages that deal with judging in the Bible. 
But even if there weren't, that's not what's being taught. The idea, the concept that our world, our society has made in uh, Matthew chapter 7 verse 1, the things that have been taught about it in our world today have not been taught correctly. Remember what is said in the rest of the passage. You know, sometimes we separate verses, and, and I, I feel obligated to remind us, even though we know it, when the Bible was written, it was not written in verses. It wasn't written in chapters. It had books. It had the, the letters. The uh, letters were written. The, the, the books were written, but it was just one long passage. And, and so if we take one man-made verse, not that the content is man-made, but a man put the numbers beside it. If we take one man-made verse and separate it from the rest of what is said, we've taken it out of context. And when we take things out of context, that becomes a pretext sometimes, as people have put it. And so what does the, what does the passage say? Passage says, Judge not that you be not judged, verse number one. But beginning in verse two, the Bible says, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Then he gives an illustration. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? Verse 5 is very important. You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. If you read the entire passage in its context, what Jesus is saying is that you cannot be hypercritical in your judgment. You can't be hypercritical. If you do, then, then what you're doing is, is bringing judgment upon yourself. But he also says, neither can you be hypocritical in your judgment. You've got to get yourself right. You've got to get your life right before you do it. But once you've done that, the point is that he makes in verse number 5, you can see clearly once you are neither hypercritical nor hypocritical, then you can see clearly to help the brother to get his or her life straightened out. That's Jesus' point. Now, if you think about other passages such as Galatians chapter 6 at verse number 1, you come to understand the concept that Jesus is stating here in Matthew chapter 7. Paul writes... Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Those are correlating passages. When you think about what Paul writes in comparison to what Jesus said back in the book of Matthew, you've got the, you've got the idea of not being hypercritical. How do you do it? You do it in the spirit of gentleness. You, 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 you remember yourself. You keep a watch on yourself. But I think the key is in who he tells to do it. Remember in Matthew, or rather Galatians chapter 6 at verse 1, Brothers, if anyone's caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual. 
You who are spiritual, you restore that one. You go to him with the wrong that he has committed and you help him or you help her do what is right. What we need to remember is Paul said that the spiritual are to do it. He didn't say the perfect are to do it. And Jesus didn't say the perfect are to judge either. He said, we're going to make a mistake. But when we make mistakes, we correct our mistakes and then we go and we make things right or help others to get their lives right. Now, having said that, who are the spiritual? Who are the spiritual? Look again at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. But brothers, I couldn't address you as spiritual people. Now, Paul says, I'm going to tell you who's not spiritual. Okay? I couldn't address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh or as carnal, depending upon which translation you're reading from, as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready uh, for it. And even now, you're not ready, for you're still in the flesh. There's jealousy, and there's strife among you. And when those things are among you, are you not acting or behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and I follow another Apollos, are you not being merely human? The division, the concept of jealousy... Those are the logs that's in the eye. Paul says, I couldn't address you as spiritual. But then he tells us about who is spiritual. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, if anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, well, who are you? If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things that I am writing to you our command of the Lord. The spiritual are those who follow the commands of God, who are doing their best to follow the commands of God. And so as we look at it then, the idea that Jesus presents in the book of Matthew chapter 7 of not judging hypercritically nor hypocritically is presented by Paul in, in the same different words, but the same concept. Jesus is not saying don't judge. He's just saying do it in the right way. And again, in the book of John chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus would clarify even with his own words. He says, do not judge by appearance, but judge with right judgment. In other words, we're to judge like Jesus judges because he's called the righteous judge in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 4 at verse number 8. And so... Again, as we think about it, Paul or Jesus, uh, they're not saying don't do it. Matter of fact, Paul said he did. Do you realize that? 1 Corinthians 5 verse 3, he says, For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And as if, I, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did, know, uh, did such a thing. And then he told the Corinthians that they were to do the same. Down in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 at verse number 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? And so we've got a, we've got a misconception. The concept of judging. Folks have a great misunderstanding. Even people in the Lord's church have a great misunderstanding in regard to 
judging. Number two, there's a misunderstanding of what tr uh, true love really is. What true love really is. Some, some folks seem to believe that if one points out a sin in the life of another, then he's not being loving. That he is, uh, he, he is uh, at least acting like he's not loving. Well, actually, the opposite is true, isn't it? In reality, one who does not point out the sin and does not seek to help the sinner is the one who's acting in an unloving way. What do you mean? Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. Remember what Paul said? When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, my spirit is present with you, the power of our Lord Jesus. You're to deliver the man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. As far as Paul is concerned, those who refuse to help the sinner to do right do not love his soul. They don't love his soul. We have a misunderstanding of what true love really and truly is. Paul asked in Galatians chapter 4 verse 16, Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? What's the rhetorical answer that he expects from that? Well, no, Paul, you haven't become our enemy because you're telling us the truth. But what really is the deciding point is what's found in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 5 and 6. The writer of the book of Hebrews says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him, for the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. Who does the Lord discipline? Well, it's not the one that He hates. It's not the one that He dislikes. It's the one that He loves. And so that's the idea, that's the concept that we need to understand. Proverbs 13, verse 24 in the Old Testament, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Well, you know what? Same is true in the Lord's church. The discipline is for the ones that we love. Brother Johnny Ramsey, many of you may remember him, but he's been dead for a number of years now, but he used to say discipline is love in action. Discipline is love in action. It's not loving to allow your child to continue in a way that's going to cost him his life, potentially. You let him stick his finger in a, in a, a socket, an electrical socket, and think it's funny? Anybody? Well, surely not, because you got all these little plastic things stuck in your things at home, those that have little children. To keep them from doing that. You don't let him play in the highway where there's heavy traffic, do you? Why? You love him. If they get out in the highway, what do you do? Well, you make them get out of the road. Teach them that they can't do that. Well, it's not loving to not discipline your child in that way to allow them to be on a course. And it's not loving to allow members of the church to practice ungodliness. That will cause them to lose their mortal faith. Just not. Number three, there's a misunderstanding of the real purpose of discipline. 
three purposes, three, three real purposes behind the idea of discipline. Number one, there's discipline for the offender's sake. That should go without saying. We've been talking about it, uh, discussing it. You know, we, uh, we think about his soul. We don't want it lost. So surely we're thinking about the, uh, the one that uh, has committed the offense. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, Paul wrote and said, If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person. Have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. And then he says in verse 15, Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. When the discipline has been done, it works. And... Uh, and once it's worked, then, then we turn, we bring the sinner back, and we receive the sinner back. And that's what Paul teaches us in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. It seems that the one that had been withdrawn from in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 had repented. And Paul talks about how in, in, in 2 Corinthians they are to receive him back, that his his punishment was enough. The punishment by the majority was enough. And lest he be overwhelmed, they were to receive him back. So discipline, number one, is for the offender's sake. Number two, discipline is for the sake of the innocent as well. 1 Corinthians 5 or 6, your boasting's not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? What's the problem with unchecked sin? Within a congregation or a group, it's going to spread. If it's okay for him or for her to do this, why is it not okay for me to do that? Sin will spread. It's like the leaven in bread. Paul would regard that, or, uh, talk about that in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. He talked about uh, Hymenaeus and Alexander there. He said, Holding faith in a good conscience by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith among whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. But what had Hymenaeus and Alexander and another by the name of Philetus, what had they done to other folks? We, we learn that in the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. They had caused others' faith to be overthrown. And so their sin had spread. It's for the sake of the innocent as well. But then last, church discipline is also for the sake of those who are outside of Christ. Those who are outside of Christ. 1 Timothy 6 verse 1, Let all who are under the yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Paul was giving instructions there and telling Christians how, how to act. But their, their, what, what they were doing can be perceived by those on the outside, can cause them to look at God in the wrong way. Same is true, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse number 2, And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the Lord will be blasphemed. When we follow sinners to do sin, people turn away. From God. And we can't allow that. When Christians don't live right and outsiders know it, 
What does it cause them to do? You know as well as I do. It causes them to stay away from God. As we bring this lesson to a close, some are bound to argue church discipline just doesn't do any good. Or it may do more harm than good. Well, to that I would simply say, are you willing to put your puny wisdom against the infinite wisdom of God? God doesn't do things the way that we do. He made that clear that His wisdom is above ours. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 27 and 28. God shows what's low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring uh, to nothing things that are. Our wisdom doesn't even compare with what God's wisdom is. And so we can't, we can't match wits with God. It just doesn't work. Somebody say, well, you may do more harm than good. Well, folks, how much more harm can you do to one who's already lost in the grip of Satan? How much more harm can you do than what he has already done to himself? Placing himself in harm's way, his soul in harm's way. Good friends, if we're serious... If we're serious about being disciples of Christ, then we must be willing to do all that He asks us to do, even when it may be difficult for us to do. The lesson that we presented this morning was one in which there are some difficult things that Jesus did by going to those who are sinners and eating with them. It was a difficult thing for others to accept. And likewise, the lesson that we're presenting tonight has some of the same principles. It may be hard for people to, to accept or hard for people to do. But if we want to be like our Lord, then we've got to do what He did. We've got to follow His words. And when it comes to discipline, we follow it in such a way that would bring Him glory, bring Him honor, and hopefully bring a soul, a soul to heaven. May we pray that God will grant us the wisdom, the patience, the love, and the courage to obey all of God's commandments, regardless of the cost. It may be tonight that you need to make your life right with God.